0: You're listening to Dental Talk from VivaLearning.com. On today's Viva podcast, we'll be discussing advanced laser procedures. With us is Dr. Scott Benjamin, an expert on the topic of dental lasers. Dr. Benjamin is in private practice in upstate New York, is the chairman of the ADA Standards Committee Working Group on Dental Lasers, a past president of the Academy of Laser Dentistry, and is the technology editor of the Compendium. Scott has done several great podcasts for us in the past, and he's joining us again. Scott, thanks for being on the program.
1: Well, thank you again for the invitation. It's always a pleasure
0: to work with you. We're talking about advanced laser procedures. What are some of the advanced laser procedures that are being performed today? Well, today with the use of dental lasers,
1: the the sky is the limit. Um, we have a variety of things we're doing. Traditionally, think of, people think of lasers as doing simple things like pocket decontamination, fibroma removals, frenectomies, and things along that line. But today, with our advanced procedures, we're going everywhere from endodontics that we've talked about in a previous podcast to doing procedures where we're reducing snoring and improving tissue tightening, actually doing things like gingival augmentation where we're actually being able to create an environment where we can gain some attached gingiva without grafting. And the idea, and also low-level laser utilization, which today is referred to as photobiomodulation, where we're using light energy to stimulate a, a healing response within the patients itself.
0: When you talked about um, snoring, so that's very related to sleep apnea, obviously, and that's a big thing now, sleep apnea. Is this something that that out of the advanced laser procedures you just mentioned, are some of these procedures applicable to a general practitioner's office?
1: Well, the idea of what is and isn't applicable to the general practitioner's office depends on the clinician's own comfort level. The idea of snoring reduction as an adjunct to assist in sleep apnea is something that's extremely valuable. The biggest concern a clinician has to have is exactly we are not licensed as dentists to be treating sleep apnea. The the sleep studies and things along that line need to be done by a sleep specialist, and what we are doing is facilitating the use of it. And, again, this is a a tightrope that dentists need to be very careful as they're walking down. Um, As we do this in our practice, we emphasize very, very strongly when we're using our erbium laser to stimulate collagen regen- um, neogenesis, that the goal here is to open up the breathing pathway to facilitate the other modalities that they're using um, for their sleep apnea if they have sleep apnea. Studies show today that 80% of the people who snore have some form of sleep apnea and that 60% of the patients today have some sort of snoring issue. So as you mentioned, this is is something that is that is very contemporary going on today, and we as dental clinicians we are literally leading the the, the forefront with it, and using lasers to help in this area becomes very important. But it's very very important that clinicians understand they do not want to overstep their quote unquote legal legal responsibilities, and it's something that again I, I stress very highly with my patients that what we're doing is we're trying to facilitate and refer them to the appropriate people to have the right sleep studies done and then monitoring them. Because one of the things we have an advantage of of being dentists, that routinely we're seeing our patients more frequently than the primary care physicians. and, And especially with people with sleep apnea, we are the front lines of actually discussing it, diagnosing the potential of the problem and then referring them out well, after they've had this, the the sleep study, then in turn being able to do things that can help them breathe better, sleep better, and have a more productive life.
0: Right, but it's very important that the general dentist understands that this type of laser procedure is available to their patients, for instance, for snoring, um, and then uh, like you said, they can make that recommendation to refer out. And we're certainly the front, the general dentists or the front line to not only this type of condition, but also to the early detection of oral cancer, which is something that I know you were very involved with for many years as well. Exact,
1: exactly. You're using light technologies to literally give us additional information so that we can make early detection of, of, of mucosal abnormalities. And, I mean, one of the problems with, with all devices that are sold in dentistry is the way they're marketed. Um, again, using things like the Velscope, like the um, the Bioscreen, and some of the other devices that are out there, the goal of these devices are not to give us a definitive diagnosis, but to use light energy to facilitate a response out of the tissue that gives us more information to help us ask the appropriate questions and to determine what we should be doing next. Right. And going and and it's and it's the same thing with what we're doing in my waiting room in my practice I actually have a picture there that I hang of a of a young couple in in um in bed with her with the wife with her hands over her ears and with the with just the phrase underneath does this sound familiar we may be able to help
0: right so in so with that picture in the waiting room when it does apply to a patient that comes in to see you you don't do the procedure yourself if it's something even Non, not that invasive using a laser or do you or do you just oh, we we
1: do we okay. actually do a snoring reduction um, We're using an erbium YAG laser with a very specialized handpiece to um, Basically tighten the tissue of the oral of the of the soft palate complex to basically open up the oral pharyngeal pathway So that the patient patient can breathe better
0: you know, but I think what's amazing about your practices, and I don't mean to interrupt, uh, interrupt but uh, I have to say this: you, you know, you, your practice reminds me of of a restaurant that was on Barrow Street many years ago in 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 the village in New York City. This restaurant had literally everything on the menu. There was it was fifteen pages of 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 special culinary delights on this menu, and uh, I don't know where this guy learned how to cook, but he just knew how to make everything from every ethnic background you can possibly think of and with your practice you being in a remote location you learned how to do so many different procedures it's mind-boggling you know through the through the past podcasts that we've done together and me knowing you for so many years you do things that general dentists don't do and do you think that's related to the fact that you were in a remote area where they you, you didn't have specialists to refer to except they had to travel 50 60 miles
1: Yes and no. I mean, one of the things that annoys me to no end in a CE course is when they talk about case selection. And case selection is very important to understand the patient's problems. But unfortunately, the patient only has their case. (laughs) You know, and the idea is a patient comes in with a problem. As an oral health care provider, it is my responsibility to identify the problem and then to do whatever I can and that I have the competency to do. And when I don't have the competency or I don't able to obtain the results I'm looking for, is then to refer them on to a specialist, uh, whether it's in in medicine or in dentistry, that has the expertise to do what the patient needs. Mm -hmm. And I mean, this is very important. The patients are their own cases. They can't select what case they are.
0: Right. But at the same time, you don't want to step beyond... Exactly Your you level of everything. expertise
1: and that 's exactly it, and you 've heard me refer to things in the past as the latter syndrome, and in my oral cancer i lectures, I talk a lot about the role of the the primary care dentist in oral cancer detection that routinely the discovery is made not by the dentist but by the hygienist. she sees something that is abnormal going on she in turn. Hands it up the ladder to me. I look at it and say, you know, and she says, Scott, I want you to pay particular attention to this area. Mm -hmm. As we look at it, I gather more information. As I gather that information, I then, in turn, hand it off to the appropriate people. If it's something that I feel that needs to be biopsied and I feel a comfort level of myself doing it, I will do it. If I feel it's something in an area that needs to be seen by a periodontist or an oral surgeon, I will refer them to them for the care. They don't make the diagnosis either. They gather additional information use their expertise to then decide what, what should be done next. And the only people that can make the diagnosis in the cases of things like oral cancer are the oral pathologists. We, as everybody else, are just leading up that pathway
0: mm-hmm.
1: to who's going to make the diagnosis. And then in turn, when well, we determine that harvesting a specimen and sending it out to the, the oral pathologist needs to be done, the specimen is harvested. They make the diagnosis. They then guide the oral surgeon, the periodontist or the general dentist that have, that have that have harvested that specimen to what they feel should be done next, where the next referral should be. And oftentimes in the case of oral cancer, it becomes let's get them to an oncology center. Having them then do their basically their their cancer bank of where they look at it. And um the cancer board then determines what is the next thing to do. The appropriate procedure is then Performed usually in that facility, and ironically, when they get all done doing their their treatment, what do they do with it? But they pass it back to the general dentist for ongoing surveillance.
0: Right. Right. And, but getting and, back yeah. into getting back into the special procedures for lasers. Um but, I didn't mean but, to get you off track. Yeah, go ahead.
1: But this whole thing becomes climbing up that ladder of where your confidence level is.
0: Right, right, absolutely. Which is going
1: back to where your question was. And so, again, using lasers in your practice, you build a confidence of doing a procedure that then gives you possibly more confidence to move on to the next. Right. If you don't build that baseline confidence, you're not going to move on to the next. And going back to the, the, the cancer scenario, the The head neck surgeon doesn't have the confidence to ro- do routine hygiene, so he hands it back to the general dentist and the hygienist for that role and It's the idea of everybody climbing up their ladder of, of expertise to where they everybody's going to get a fear of height somewhere and if, that's the point of handing it off and the the value of having these advanced technologies such as lasers, I can climb up that little bit, that ladder a little bit higher with more confidence to be able to do things, but it's not overselling the procedure being done. Right. Going back to where we were with, with, with the snoring reduction, what, our goal here is to open up the pathway to, to reduce the snoring and to increase the breathing. It's not the correct sleep apnea. And we, and we were very emphatic about explaining that to our patients. We're going to be working. It takes, you know, it takes a team of people to get the right outcome.
0: So the procedure, the special procedure that you use for the snoring that you do in your office, is that something, how long does that take? Tell us something about that.
1: Well, the procedure itself, and if there's an Achilles heel to the procedure, it's the time, because to do the appropriate assessment takes about a half an hour. To interview the patient, to discuss the scenario, we have actually have forms that the patient fills out for them and their sleep partner of, again, on their their drowsiness scale, their sleeping patterns and those type of things, referring them again to the to the the sleep clinic and the sleep medicine specialist. Then when they come back and they get referred to, and if they are presently and typically, what we're finding is many of our patients wear a, are supposed to be wearing a CPAP and are not, and that is a real problem that we have in society today. It's been estimated anywhere from fifty to eighty percent of the people who should be wearing a CPAP are not wearing it. Uh, routinely
0: Mm -hmm. it it becomes a yeah i mean that's uh prevalent throughout yeah i've heard those statistics as well Um, and um and and so we have to be careful as a clinician that it's not being
1: perceived that we are encouraging them to get off their cpap and it's you you have to make sure as as the as the dental clinician that you have the appropriate documentation we're doing again an adjunctive procedure to hopefully tighten the tissue to in turn enhance the breathing pathway to help the CPAP become more efficient.
0: And that's done with a soft tissue laser? Uh, actually, that's actually
1: done with an erbium, which would be considered oftentimes by many a hard tissue oh, laser. Okay. And we're actually doing it. And what we're doing with it, we're using very specialized hand pieces. Yeah, tell us
0: about we, those hand pieces, would you? We
1: we have a fractional handpiece that actually is basic. For a simplistic way, it's doing pulse stacking, that we're drilling tiny little holes into the soft tissue. And again, I'm drilling is the inappropriate word, but we're each pulse with a very specialized mode is we're vaporizing tissue deeper and deeper and deeper, stimulating the collagen to turn over. And that collagen turnover is referred to as collagen neogenesis. Very similar to what's being done in um in derma abrasion or or being done in, in in plastics and dermatology on the skin to mm-hmm. tighten the skin. Right. We're actually doing the same thing to the oral mucosa on the inside of the oral cavity. And the concept of what we're doing that way is treating the entire soft palate complex in a very specified pattern and a very specified mechanism. And it takes, again, you mentioned time. It takes about a half an hour to do the thorough workup. And then about 20 to 30 minutes per appointment. It usually takes three appointments to get, the efficacy we, that we're looking where for. Did you,
0: where did you get your training to do this?
1: Well, again, this training was actually provided by the people that, that sold me the laser, the Photana Company, which is the, um, the, the one that actually developed the technique, which is a very interesting company because they specialize in lasers, not only in dental, but in gynecology, dermatology, and plastics. And the process of this came from is actually after childbirth of doing vaginal rejuvenation, of tightening the lumen that has been stretched out by childbirth mm-hmm. and helping with women with, with with urinary incontinence of how they were able to tighten the tissue using the same type of protocols to, to, to literally in turn tighten the mucosa instead of being in the reproductive system, now being in the oral cavity to gain the same type of, of turnover of the tissue. And this is where the concept came. And this is why dealing with companies that specialize in lasers, and that is their primary focus on these very advanced procedures, become very important. Do they have because, a training facility there?
0: This they, or where do they, you they, do they, it?
1: Um, actually, the, the initial training I took on this was was done in, at, at one of their training facilities that they have, and they have several scattered around the country. And that the And I've also had, you know, courses on this in Europe and other places. And they have a whole certification program that they go through not that I like the word certification, but a whole training program mm-hmm. because the word certification is reserved for the specialist. Right. As you as an endodontist are a, have, a, have a certification in an Right. and it's reserved for those specialists. And that is probably one of the most misoverused words today that a lot of the state boards are starting to have problems
0: with. Well, even as Viva Learning is an ADA cert provider, our, what we used to call certificates, we had to change the name to proof of CE. Because the ADA did not really uh, favorably look favorably upon a document that said certificate, because not re- we're not really providing certification in any. Verification. Yeah. Verification
1: was, of training is, is, is yeah. what I use in my courses. They're exactly right. for that, that reason. Right. To be in the appropriate compliance with the AGD and the ADA, it's you're verifying that the person has been trained. You're not certifying that they are a specialist in any one field. Mm -hmm. Um, and again, that's sort of off on a tangent, but that's a, a very, very important concept. And a lot of the state boards, and I'm working with a lot of state boards on laser regulations get very upset with that. And they're, they're they're trying because of the false information, the misleading information, I guess it's a better way to phrase it. So, so
0: listening to your podcasts, we've had several great series of great episodes of podcasts uh, so far. And we hope to do more with you on lasers. You know, I'm, a, I'm, of course, learning a tremendous amount. It seems to me the dentist buys a laser. They decide they want to implement a laser in their practice. They get a laser, and they start with what they, could, what they feel confident doing. They get some basic training, and they do these procedures. And then they slowly become more confident, as you say, with the laser. And now in this podcast, we're talking about advanced laser procedures. But this, was, this is a process like anything else. Uh, you're using a, a technology that applies to dentistry And it's in other medical verticals, of course. But you you seem to be leading the way in the dental vertical with dental lasers. There's no doubt about it. Do you agree that it's just a process of, of getting confident with the device over time, starting with simple procedures and moving up?
1: It's a combination of getting familiar with the device, but more importantly, getting familiar with the technology and being able to read the tissue to understand where you're going And when the laser energy interacts with the tissue, what is the response you're looking for? As I work with the the students in the dental schools, I talk to them about the techniques that you're doing here are extremely simple. Reading and understanding what's going on within the tissue itself is where the learning curve is. Right. So as the clinician reads the tissue, learns the, the response the tissue has as they change the parameters, which may be the laser it may be the wavelength it may be the power it may be how the power is delivered it may be that the hand speed they're using it may be again the amount of cooling or irrigation they're applying all of these are various ways to manipulate the tissue to give you the outcomes that you're looking for the snoring procedure that you know that we've talked about is has a huge amount of interest just because of the the whole sleep issue that has right. hit our profession in the last few years. Right. The same basic concept is being done internally to tighten the, the mucosal tissue to actually do an almost like an intraoral oral facelift, hmm. where we're actually using the laser to tighten the, the mucosa of the oral cavity, which in turn tightens the skin on the outside to reduce wrinkles and um, various, various processes along that line. And again, with the idea, of what is the comfort zone? As we know, we have doctors that are today are getting into all sorts of things that are sort of on the fringe of dentistry, Botox injections, et cetera. Right, right. This is a way to help augment those that are that are doing that. Again, giving the patients the the, the ability to have simple procedures, enhance their quality of life. The idea of another procedure that I'm doing routinely several times a week, unfortunately, in my practice is a a procedure of gingival augmentation where I'm taking a very simple soft tissue laser that I have complete control over and in turn being able to increase the dimensions of attached gingiva to negate the need for having to wait until they have to have graft surgery. How does that work? What's the mechanics behind that? How does that work? Well, basically, what we're doing is we're creating a surgical wound to heal by secondary intention, mm. and just like when your skin, when you when you cut your skin, or when we do a graft surgery, and we harvest tissue from the hard palate, what happens to the hard palate over a period of time? The heart, the tissue regenerates by growing from the lateral borders in.
0: Right. And
1: so it's a it's a matter of being able to read the tissue, understanding the composition being able to understand the depth if you want to get the light energy too, and how you want it to heal in the long run. And so we have got the ability now that we do routinely when we see a patient that's starting to lose or has an inadequate zone of attached gingiva, rather than waiting till it's all gone and going and doing a graft procedure mm-hmm. that we can intervene very early in the process, literally with using um, a high-powered 970 diode laser
0: or an NDAG laser, be able to do it with topical anesthetic. So increasing this attached gingiva, this sounds to me like a periode procedure for a a periodontist.
1: More and more periodontists are going down this pathway. Mm -hmm. And again, as I teach my laser courses, believe it or not, this one procedure probably gets more questions and it's got the biggest wow factor of anything that I teach because they can easily recognize a problem. And when they see the, the, the post-op results and the simplicity of doing it because of the way the light energy interacts with the tissue, but it's all understanding the tissue response.
0: And, and you're saying is, that using this technique, when you compare it to doing, taking tissue from the palate, which is uncomfortable for the patient, as you mentioned, it has to heal by secondary intention, you're getting the same clinical results without that, doing that graft?
1: I'm actually getting, and I've had been questioned by periodontists, how did I make my graft look that well? Wow. Because when it gets done, it literally looks like there was never a defect there in the first
0: place. Well, it's the same tissue.
1: It's the same it's tissue. <laughs> you, you hit the nail on the head. We're encouraging the body to do what the body is programmed to do with that tissue. Right,
0: right. You're not taking tissue from the palate and putting it there. It's just, it's, it's, you know, it, it's gingival, it's attached gingiva that's just growing. And, and
1: that's exactly, and, and it's the idea is understanding the goal that you're after,
0: mm-hmm.
1: how the body responds becomes very important, which is going back to the concept of learning how the tissue responds. Photography becomes extremely important. Being able, as you're doing in, a, in any laser procedure, but especially in things in advanced laser procedures, doing in a, a, a diagnostic photograph, and it doesn't got to be high quality. Mm-hmm. But something that you can actually see and understand the tissue, taking one immediately postoperatively so you can see what you have just accomplished and then follow up appointments. It's it maybe three or six months or a year or multiple year increments. You can then assess your own work, learn of where you've been successful and what you did and where you have failed and why you failed. And the ideas is, is to critically assess your own work, is the greatest way to learn how to do better healthcare.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, as far, as far as the grafting goes, a grafting procedure has a certain billing code. Um, what does this build under?
1: Oh, it's very interesting. You ask that question. I do some technical consulting for the Academy of Dental Insurance Consultants. Mm-hmm. And I actually presented one of these cases to them, which was where I was questioned on, on great detail. I showed them the pre-op, asking what they would pay for. They right. showed the pre-op photograph, and I asked him what they paid for, and nine, and I had them with voting machines. Ninety-some percent said they would pay for graft surgery, looking at it without a doubt.
0: Right, so, so they're, looking at the pre, them, they're looking at the pre-op yeah. before they know how you got, the, how you got to the, your end result. And then I
1: showed them the post-op mm-hmm. a year later, and I asked them on a scale of 1 to 10 – rate the outcomes. The lowest number I got was a nine. Hmm. I was questioned by various periodontists. How did you make that blend in so well?
0: Right. Assuming that you grafted Uh, it.
1: You know, that looks, that tissue looks absolutely perfect. How did you accomplish that? Mm -hmm. I said, I I didn't do a graft.
0: And they're like, what did you do? And
1: then I showed them the procedure with the idea. And I said, now you told me on a previous questions that I ask him and then they have him vote on that. Am I paid for the procedure or am I paid for the successful outcome?
0: So what, what, was, what's the answer to that?
1: Their answer was the successful outcome. And then I said, okay, so should I be compensated for graft surgery here because I got an outcome equivalent to graft surgery? And you could have heard a freaking pin drop because I showed him it was a 45-second procedure.
0: <laughs> that sounds like and my friend Scott playing the with their hands.
1: I, <laughs> and and my comment to them is, now, is that fee fair to the patient? The heck with the, the third-party reimbursement. Is that fee fair to the patient? And I said, in my opinion, it's not. I've saved them that huge amount of expense. I'm normally doing this procedure, believe it or not, at the end of a hygiene visit, because it takes me longer to explain it to the patient than it does to do
0: it. So what what do you bill for it? Well, we got
1: into a discussion with the insurance group on that, which is where I went down this pathway. And I said, would you feel that billing this as a gingiplasty for the normal normal billing fee of a gingiplasty would be appropriate? And everybody in the room, and again, agreed that that was probably a very fair way to bill it as far as for the patient as well. And again, I, but the benefit here is I've saved the patient a huge amount of mm-hmm. pain and discomfort. Right. i saved the patient a huge amount of money i saved the insurance company a fair amount of money and i have basically performed care that i got well compensated for for literally a minute right, based of time.
0: on the based on the time that you put in yeah so, so the question wanted- the question is would periodontists be willing to you know give up 25% of their grafting procedures and do this procedure and and reduce their overall revenue to their practice I mean, or, I don't know. Uh, maybe, I don't know.
1: Maybe on the other side is the procedure is that simple. Would do, would the GPS be doing this routinely once they understand how simplistic it is, and the people that 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 I have taught this procedure to, all come back to me raving about how simple it is, and about the incredible results they're getting.
0: And, and the laser that you used for this, what type? I I uh, routinely I'll
1: use my 970 sero laser which with a high peak power of 14 watts, and a very, very short pulse duration. That's a soft soft tissue laser. That's a soft tissue laser. Um, Or I can do it, I can get the same results with my NDAG laser, which is also a soft tissue laser that has even higher peak power, but a much shorter pulse duration because we're vaporizing tissue and not burning it.
0: And with the the aging population, this seems like a much more – applicable clinical procedure that you're going to be doing you know, just with the geriatric patient population? Well, more importantly,
1: because it's minimal discomfort at all to the patient Mm -hmm. and the fact that it can be done quickly and routinely by being proactive on this, we in turn have minimized the advancement of the disease. Mm Mm-hmm. Do I always get what I'm looking for the first time around? And the answer is probably not. I would say probably 80% of the cases I get an, a very acceptable response the first time around. When the patient comes back in a hundred percent of the cases, I have an improved outcome from where we started. Right. The patient is back for their, their, their hygiene visit in six months. We look at it and we've gained some, but not all that I need. I tell the patient, you know what? We've got a, we we got some gain, but it's not ideal. We should do a little bit more. Well, let's do it right now. Been, and they've already been through the procedure. They know the the minimal discomfort associated with it. And those patients, I routinely don't even charge them for it. Amazing. Because Because it, it's, it's only, a, again, it's only a minute of my time. Right. And I'm a very big, again, being a small-town dentist, I'm very big on quality of care and treating my patients fairly.
0: Yeah, but remember, the time, it may be a short amount of time, to do the actual procedure, but you spent a whole career learning about it. So in all your education, that, that has value too. Well, that's exactly yeah. But the idea is it's a role of a professional to share
1: knowledge and to share their expertise with their colleagues. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is a, an obligation that uh, the true professionalism, which unfortunately seems to be dying in our profession, needs to focus on. Right. Is, when we, is how do we do this in a way that's going to benefit all of our patients? You know, and this is this is an extremely important concept because having the patients understand that I truly care about their health really facilitates me doing what's in their best interest.
0: Yeah. But us, what, tell us about photobiomodulation, Scott, um, that's, which was previously referred to as low level laser therapy. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. Well,
1: photobiomodulation is basically going to be the future of healthcare.
0: It is using
1: light energy, usually either a laser or an LED light, at a very low intensity to stimulate and enhance a healing response. And we're doing this at a cellular level, and we are routinely now performing this type of a procedure as an adjunct to all of our surgical techniques, whether it's extractions, whether it's soft tissue surgery, whether it's even endodontic therapy, to help enhance the healing process. And it's something that, yeah, I believe we're going to have another podcast and go more yeah. into detail. Yeah, definitely. What, how, how, this,
0: what A lot of research has been done in this area?
1: The research on this area is quite extensive. There are, there are routinely now about 30 studies being published monthly. There have been over 500 randomized controlled trials and about 4,000 laboratory studies that have already been completing on it. This area of medicine is exploding. One study that has been done at the the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, they've been able to literally eliminate oral mucositis related to radiation therapy, 100% in a study with approximately 300 patients in it. To me, photobiomodulation is the greatest enhancement we have done to quality of life of anything I've seen in my career.
0: Wow, that's quite a statement. And this low-level laser therapy, what type of laser emits this?
1: Well, again, there are, it's a matter of the, the various wavelengths that are out there. And unlike a surgical laser that you want to have absorbed into the surface, you're going to use a laser that enables you to be penetrate deeper into the tissue. So the wavelengths that are traditionally used in this are wavelengths in the 660 range, the low 800 range, and even up into the 1064 with, with high power the ndaxs so those are the lasers that that traditionally have been used in this and there there's more and more research being done and it's exploding at, a, at an ever ever expanding rate uh jerry Bocco, a colleague of ours who was is now at the university of west virginia who was at ut houston the dental branch down there actually had a study that he showed at the uh at the nih where he actually was able to convert type 4 bone that was too f- it was too porous for an implant by treating it with light therapy for 15 minutes a day was able to convert it into type one bone
0: and how long did um, it take for that density to increase about 90 days wow, wow. and again that's powerful well, stuff
1: yeah and again then as we'll get in more into detail in that next podcast the role of photobiomodulation is to encourage cells to do what cells are programmed to do
0: right well it's similar it's similar to the procedure you just discussed about the grafting exactly uh, the attached the secondary intention growing attached gingiva
1: yeah and that's the whole idea of empowering the body to respond the way the body has been programmed to respond mm-hmm. and it's amazing you know, stuff
0: yeah so let's wrap we'll wrap up this one um, another great podcast from Scott Benjamin dr. Scott Benjamin and uh, as I mentioned he's certainly one of the top experts in the world on dental lasers and he's gonna be doing another podcast for us Very shortly, it'll be on photobiomodulation, which she briefly talked about here. Thanks, Scott, for joining us on this podcast, and uh, we really appreciate all the information. Thank you
1: very much for the invitation, and it's always a pleasure to to work with you, Phil, and your, your people there.